Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. Think about where you live, your favorite pizzeria or salon, your interactions at the pool or the post office. Do you have your spot, the place you park at the grocery store? Does the coffee shop know your order by heart? What does it mean to feel at home? Do you feel at home? Do you have place attachment, an emotional tie to where you live? Or is it just a place to hang your hat? If you'd like to feel more at home, even if you've been in your neighborhood for years, Melody Warnick has some ideas, a few experiments. Volunteer, support local business, invest in your little world and see what happens. What if you invested in your extended family a little more? What if you invested in your company a little more? What if you invested in humanity a little more? Melody Warnick wrote, This is where you belong, finding home wherever you are. Why? I've moved through five states, six moves in about 13 years. So for a while, it really felt like we never really stayed in one place for more than a few years. Now, you've done a lot of research, so do we as a Americans move more than other people? Not completely. Uh, there are other countries that move a little bit more than us, um, but some countries like Germany and China that move much less. About 12% of Americans move every year, which to me seems like a lot. Um, it's a lot of people who are pulling up stakes every single year and moving on. Now, right after you move, is that time good for anything except maybe like therapy? Um, moving can be really traumatic. Um, it is a period of chaos and loneliness. I remember when we had this last move and moved to Blacksburg, Virginia, going into the grocery store and just feeling so bereft because I couldn't find, you know, the black beans or whatever. So um, that was one of the things that made me want to write this book was having that experience and wondering what does it take to actually feel at home in a place, to actually finally feel like you've settled in and you are part of the community because it really doesn't tend to happen quickly Um, and in some places it can take years so I wanted to know you know can you speed up that process of feeling like you're happy in your town yeah Um, you have some love where you live experiments can you tell us about those yeah so that was what I learned about um, as I researched this topic, uh, there's a term that I love called place attachment, which is um, a phrase that suggests the um, emotional connection that we can develop with the place where we live, sort of, you know, Dorothy in Wizard of Oz saying there's no place like home. And I wanted that feeling. So I looked at the research and um, looked at what other people were doing and came up with 10 broad categories that can help people feel more at home where they live. Everything from walking to buying local to getting to know your neighbors. And I put put them to the test personally in my town. I, you know, I called them love where you live experiments and I forced myself out of my comfort zone um, in a lot of cases to try and do some of these things as a way to change my attitude 
for my town. And so, it worked. And it worked for it, you. It worked. The spoiler alert is that it actually worked. Um, you know, over the course of a year or two, I, you know, did things like volunteered at the local historic movie theater, um, you know, donated to local crowdfunding projects. I went to football games at Virginia Tech, even though I hate football, <laughs> <laughs> because it's something that my town loves. Um, and all these things over time really changed my feelings about where I lived. They made me feel more connected, more of a sense of ownership for my town, like I was invested in, in what was happening here and in its future. Um, and, and they made me feel happier. Uh, Melody Warnick is our guest, and this is where you belong. Finding Home Wherever You Are is her book. If you move around a bit or you know someone who's in a new home, this is the perfect housewarming gift. Isn't it something, you know, what, what I think about when I read your book is, what if we went after every aspect of our life like this? Right. I've actually thought a lot about that. Um, The huge thing that makes a difference in how we relate to the places where we live is our willingness to invest and engage, you know, like instead of just sitting on the sidelines and complaining about things, you get out there and you make things happen. And there's a lot of research that shows that attitude will help you in your workplace and in your relationships. And every other aspect of your life. I think sometimes we have a tendency to think, um, you know, to want that clean slate, to just dump the life we have now and start over someplace else. But there are true benefits instead to digging a little deeper and um, and working harder on you know, making good things happen where you are right now. Engage, engage, engage. It can be life-changing. Yeah. Um, one story that I tell in the book that comes from your part of the country is uh, of a woman named Nancy Barton who had a second home in Prattsville, New York, this little tiny town. Um, and in, when Hurricane Irene passed through, this was a town that suffered enormous damage. It, it basically washed out their entire main street. And Nancy could have just said, huh, that's too bad. But instead, she started attending meetings that the town held about rebuilding. And when people suggested, you know, this town really needs a gathering place, especially for our young people, she volunteered. She raised her hand and said, I I know something about that, and I can do it. So she ended up getting a $200,000 grant, um, bought an old hardware store downtown, fixed it up and turned it into the Prattsville Art Center, this wow. community center with free art lessons and a gallery and a, and a coffee bar. Um, and she, I think, is a perfect example of someone who made a choice to really dig down and invest in her community. Um, and, you know, that's certainly challenging and probably not everyone is up to that level of commitment but for her the benefits are that she's become sort of the um you know a pillar of the community whereas before she really didn't know that many people now everyone knows nancy and and everyone loves her for what she's done for their town that's great melanie warnick is the guest this is where you belong is the book were you ever in a town that you didn't feel liked you back I love how you put that. Um, You know, 
right after I graduated from college, my husband and I moved to St. George, Utah, and we found it a hard place to make friends because um, a lot of people who live there live near family. They would spend their evenings having dinner with their family. People weren't quite as interested in making friends in, in the community. So it was a little bit of a hard sell for, for us. But even there, I think, you know, looking back on it, I think there were things that worked really well for us. It's, you know, near all these fantastic national parks in southern Utah. The weather was great. So, I, you know, I like to think about that. Not all of us live in a town that feels like a perfect fit. And some of us have these fantasy lives of, you know, if I could only move to X city, everything would be different and better. And I think there's some truth to that, that, you know, some places are better fit for who we are and our lifestyle than others. But the hopeful message that I've gotten out of researching place attachment is that no matter where you are, you can feel better about it. Um, You know, moving isn't entirely bad, and sometimes moving can be a a good thing for people. When that's not a choice, the only choice that's left to you is being miserable or changing your attitude. And there are easy ways to work on changing your attitude. All right. In the minute we have left, tell us one thing that people can do right now to to fall in love with their hometown a little more? Number one easy thing, shop at a local business today. There's something called the local multiplier effect that says that about three times the money stays in your local community when you shop at local independent businesses than when you shop online or at big box stores. So pick a thing that you buy and pick a business. It will probably be a teeny bit more expensive and that's okay. You you are supporting your community and it will make you feel really good. Melody Warnick. The thing is, we give meaning to things and we can write a new story and find home wherever we are. If you'd like to win a copy of Melody's book, send me an email from the website kc.co. That's k-a-c-e-y dot co. And we've got some more summer fun tickets to the Maritime Aquarium. If you'd like to win those, let me know. Hi, this is Karen Storstein, the psychic psychotherapist. Are you in a toxic work environment and looking for peace? As a psychotherapist and management consultant with 25 years experience working in almost every industry, you're not alone if you feel your work environment is toxic. Neurotoxicity occurs when the brain is repeatedly flooded with stress hormones. Stress hormones flood higher brain functioning, leaving the primitive brain to take over, which is in charge of a fight, flight, or freeze response. You may become short-sighted, angry, avoidant, and even paranoid if you have neurotoxicity. Making any decision is difficult. So how do you find calm in the storm? One of the few things you can control is your attitude. Neuroscience knows that a positively peaceful attitude literally shifts the brain away from the amygdala that produces a stress reaction to expand and reorganize higher brain functioning. Here are a few other techniques. Notice your own fears and projections. Your outer world is a projection of your inner world. What are you subconsciously creating? 
come from a place of compassion and empathy. Don't take things so personally. Do work that has meaning and that gives you joy. Honor and use your talents and strengths. Meditate. Exercise. Walking 20 minutes a day can change your mind. And say no when appropriate and speak your mind. Remember, you chart your own career. You are never stuck, only your thinking may be. Get in or get out. The choice is yours. For more information, visit my website at karensinsight.com. Okay, sweeties. Food journalist Kelly Choi is here. If you want to avoid the sugar this summer, avoid the juice. Eat the orange. Pass up the orange juice. We're closing the sugar gap. Right, Kelly? Yes. It's difficult these days, understandably, because there's so much conflicting information that we see in the media about what's healthy, what's not. Even when we think we know what we're eating, it turns out that there are lots of things that might be hidden, what we're calling the hidden sugar effects. Let's take a very typical breakfast food, for example, a bagel. You go into your coffee shop, you hear the words whole wheat bagel, and you get that. But it turns out that eating that whole wheat bagel has this hidden sugar effect of consuming what's comparable to seven and a half teaspoons of sugar. Definitely something that you might find a little surprising. Okay, comes, so there's not yeah. seven and a half teaspoons of sugar in the bagel, is there? No. No, there isn't, but it does something to our blood sugar levels, that hidden sugar effect of, the, of, of eating that. It's not that the bagel itself has it, but the hidden sugar effect of eating that bagel is similar to that seven and a half teaspoons of sugar. Wow. So how does that happen? What goes on in the body? Well, basically, when we eat carbohydrates, it breaks down into simple sugar so that our body can digest it and use what it needs for nutrients. So that process, the carbs that we're reading in that supposed whole wheat bagel is similar to having the sugar itself. Okay, so maybe eat a half a bagel once a week. Yeah, I mean, there, you, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I think part of that is just awareness that you can incorporate other foods with it. Same goes, for example, juices. You know, there are a lot of juice shops in New York particularly that are really popular, just because it's freshly squeezed doesn't mean that it's not going to have a blood sugar impact on our bodies. An orange juice, freshly squeezed, no extra sugar that's been added, is comparable to consuming four teaspoons of sugar. That hidden sugar effect is definitely strong in our fresh fruit juices. Have a piece of cake or <laughs> right, or eat, yeah, the, or eat it's, the orange. It's, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's definitely when it comes to fruits as well, have the fruit itself over having the juice. It's much more concentrated. And, man, it's really easy to chug a fresh fruit juice without, you know, kind of realizing what happened all of a sudden. Right, because it's basically candy. Now, yeah. uh, what about brown rice? Uh, brown rice has a lower sugar impact over, say, white rice. It's definitely been less processed, and it has the vitamin B and the fiber that's on the outside of the rice itself. So if you're going to choose of the two, if you can help it, have the brown rice. Have the brown rice over the white rice. Yes. If, you, if your concern is not raising our blood sugar levels, which, of course, if that is constantly high, leads to inflammation, leads to a whole host of other diseases, yes, brown rice over white if you can help it. Inflammation is the worst. Yeah, it is. And sugar directly feeds into that. Okay, so watch the sugar. We all know soda's bad. That's that's like high at the, the A number one on the list, right? Right, right. And this is one place where you can really make an easy swap, I think. When you're having your drinks, don't drink your sugar. Don't drink your calories. Uh, don't have the soda, of course, but don't have the sweetened teas or just the easy bottled teas that we see all the time. Don't have the lemonade. Don't have those summery drinks that we see a lot of the time and cocktails as well. Have unsweetened tea. Have your water infused with 
with, say, berries, blueberries, strawberries. Lemon, of course, is a really popular one. Don't drink that sweetener. Save it for a place where you really want to have it instead. Dare I suggest that we stop drinking wine? Uh, wine can absolutely be a part of a healthy diet. Um, it it ha is a part of the balance of protein and healthy fats and a carbohydrate that has fiber. Not that wine has fiber, but it can absolutely be a part of that. And also there are different versions of wine that are a lot sweeter. For example, say after dinner, uh, dessert wine is much sweeter than having a wine with, say, your meal. When we need to find out what we should be eating, if we should eat this, or not that. Right. Uh, where can we go for more information? Well, you can check out a site called HiddenSugar.com. Eat This Not That teamed up with Atkins to come up with easy swaps that you can find on HiddenSugar.com. Um, we'll, you know, that's a place where you'll find a lot of easy swaps. As we mentioned, it's uh, summertime. It's the time of having lots of cookouts and barbecues. Easy swaps, say, when you have a burger. Instead of having that soft, squishy bun, opt instead for a lettuce wrap. It gives you texture. It gives you great crunch. You don't have to skimp on the toppings when it comes to those burgers or hot dogs. Have sautéed mushrooms or have jalapenos. You can top that burger with cheese as well as that hot dog. And don't forget, of course, those fiber-rich carbs. This is a great time to load up on all of those things. It will really satiate your appetite where you won't miss the sugar. One easy way to do that. What's a fiber-rich carb? Broccoli, um, a lot of any typical vegetable, celery, uh, sautéed mushrooms, all of those will help satiate you because it has that fiber. And it won't be an empty carb that we tend to call those things where it's just going to shoot your blood sugar up. Okay. Um, should anyone ever eat a hot dog, really? Uh, well, in New York, it's, it, there are a lot of really good artisanal hot dogs. So we're not going to say that no food is ever evil or that it's a never. Uh, it just has to do with how what we're talking about in particular, the hidden sugar effect. And believe it or not, a lot of good hot dogs are out there that have very low impact on that uh, blood sugar level that we're talking about. All right, Kelly, if you say so, if you say so, <laughs> oh, dog. can we tune into how we feel after we get a sugar hit? Does it make us feel good? It does, and that's part of the reason why people are so addicted to sugar. But if you can balance protein and your fats with some fiber, that will feel just as good. And you won't feel guilty later after, too. I think when it comes to snack time, when it's like 3 or 4 p.m. and you're feeling a little low because you probably had a big lunch, instead of reaching for pretzels... At one time, we thought those were really healthy because it was low in fat, but instead you want to have, say, an Atkins bar or have a hard-boiled egg or some nuts. There are a lot of those one-serving um, packets of nut butters that are really delicious out there. Snacking is an important thing, I think, especially in New York when everyone's so busy, they just want to grab whatever's handy. Think a little bit ahead of time, and you can set yourself up for success and not have high-sugar foods. All right, HiddenSugar.com, and where can we find out more about you? About me, you can come to, gosh, I'm on Instagram, KellyChoy7. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Snapchat and Twitter, KellyChoy. Reach out to me there, and I will answer anything that you have. Thank you, Kelly Choi. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. When you think of the United States Post Office, do you think of it as being radical? You know what? In its beginnings, that's just what it was. Hiring women and African Americans, educating through spreading the news was the most important function of the federal government. Winifred Gallagher believes the thread that united these United States was, in fact, the post office. 
Where did this thought begin? About 10 years ago, my husband and I, who've always lived on the East Coast, bought um, a little house in um, a remote northwestern corner of Wyoming near Yellowstone Park. And we had the mind-boggling experience, me for the first time, of driving across the country, or at least 2,000 miles of it, several times. And I began to wonder uh, just the sheer size of America. You, you really have to experience it at a gut level, I think, to appreciate it. The variety, the, the different politics, the different terrain, the, everything about it, it was just kind of astounding to me. And I started thinking, like, what in the world held this whole thing together? All these different states and territories, they're so different, they're so distant. How did the East Coast link up with the West Coast? Uh, you know, what really made it made it work? And I And I had the intuition that it was the post office and I did some research and in fact you know I think I make a pretty good case that the post office really did create America in in very important ways. Now we were a new country and our founding fathers had this wonderful idea to create you know the Pony Express post office. Were there post offices that were up and humming in other countries? The Europeans had some postal services. France and Britain certainly did but they were nothing like ours. Our postal service was incredibly radical. Uh, It started out radical Radical. Um, Benjamin Franklin, who who was the postmaster general for Britain for when we were colonies uh, before he became our first postmaster general, was one of the few people in the colonies who had traveled around to all thirteen of them and saw that there was a way to link them up. They were they were not they didn't get along. They didn't communicate. Uh, he was he had this rare insight that they could be hooked together by by communications, and he started saying that if 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 they can be hooked together by for mail, why can't they be hooked together for politics? I mean, he really he really was a visionary in that respect. In 1792, the founders decided that, and this is the radical part, that in order for uh, democracy to function, the people had to know what was going on. They had to know about current events. They had to know what the government was doing. They needed, in other words, an informed electorate. So to create that informed electorate, they said our postal service is going to deliver the news to all the people. Letters were very, very expensive to send. They were mostly only sent by lawyers and businessmen. Most regular people didn't even get one per year. Uh, but what they did get were, were newspapers. So, the, you know, the post office is really responsible for our lively, uncensored, <laughs> contentious political culture, which we see going on around us now. That really goes back to 1792. Yeah. And women and blacks were welcome to work at the very new post office system. F- from the very beginning, as you know, women didn't get, weren't even enfranchised. They didn't have the vote until 1919, 1920. But they were employed by the post office way back in revolutionary times, not in big numbers, but um, their, their numbers did increase, especially uh, as the post office moved west. There weren't enough men to do all the jobs, so they were kind of forced to hire women. Montgomery Blair, uh, Lincoln's postmaster general, hired women to work as postal clerks in the, in the big post office in Washington, D.C., back when that was a very important job. Yes, they've always employed women, and of course now we have a woman postmaster general. Minorities, soon after the Civil War, the post office hired many, many African Americans, many, uh, not just as mail carriers, but um, African Americans in very important positions, you know, executive positions within the post office. This was back in the day that uh, a lot of highly educated, very competent African Americans didn't have a lot of job possibilities. 
and the caliber of uh, those folks who worked for the post office was really uh, exceptional. How the post office created America. Winifred Gallagher is the author, and this is out in paperback now. And what was the most surprising thing you found in your research? I guess the fact that from the Declaration of Independence until up until around World War One, the post office was the single most important function the biggest and most important function of the federal government. It, for most Americans, it was it was the federal government. That's how most Americans ex- experienced the federal government from their from their local post office and their and their postmaster. Uh, I, I just had no idea that it was so deeply woven into the the DNA of the country in, in every respect. Winifred Gallagher, How the Post Office Created America. If you'd like to win a copy of this or summer fun tickets to the Maritime Aquarium, send an email from the new website, kc.co. And our thought for the day is a little nugget from our first postmaster, the very prudent Benjamin Franklin, who said, Beware of little expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. See you next week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at caseyradio.com. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show next Sunday morning from 100.7 WHUD.